Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com In Chapter 29, we finally meet Lady Catherine de Berg. Collins cannot wait for Lizzie to meet her, sure that Lizzie will be bowled over by the majesty of Rosings and Lady Catherine. The house is, in fact, impressive, but it pains Lizzie to admit it, so she absolutely refuses to admit it out loud. And then Lizzie meets Lady Catherine herself, and Lizzie is not impressed. Lady Catherine is bossy and invasive. She grills Lizzie. What was her education like? How big is her family? Why is the estate entailed in the way that it is? Lizzie answers the best that she can, though she resents this line of questioning. Lady Catherine is astounded by the Bennett daughter's lack of education. She says that she believes that education should be steady and consistent. And then she tells us about all of the work she's done to match the right governess with the right families in her community. Here is Aisha Ramachandran on Lady Catherine de Berg. You know, Lady Catherine really figures a woman who's like taken charge after her husband died of the estates. She's sort of socially savvy and she's economically savvy, but she's also, she's abrasive and she doesn't apologize for the fact that she has power and she uses it. And Austin doesn't like that. You know, and it's like there's a way in which she disturbs other kinds of norms of femininity and female reticence by her kind of just out there sort of, you know, desire to control things. And and I think just as I as I've become older and I find the Darcy character more and more annoying, I find the Lady Catherine character more and more endearing. I mean, for obvious reasons. Right. I mean, as you become an older woman, you see and you understand what she's after. But you also recognize that. She destroys her daughter in a certain way, right? I think that the sad thing about Anne is precisely the daughter of the matriarch who doesn't give her room to be her own person. And this is where, again, I think that this is a novel that actually is really hostile to strong women, like women who are entitled and privileged and strong. Uh, And, you know, it, it sort of shows us, I mean, I think in that sense, Anne is an extension of Lady Catherine. Like she's an example to us of how bad Lady Catherine is and how controlling and how destructive that kind of femininity is. And the kind of femininity that the novel, I think, finally endorses is is that of obviously of Lizzie, who is smart, but still subordinate to the wealthy, privileged man. Austin seems to be writing an insufferable woman with insufferable manners, but not an evil woman. 
Austin knows how to write bad guys. But here, the first time we meet Lady Catherine, Austin has her advocate for women's education. I am not defending Lady Catherine. It is not her business that all five of the Bennett girls are out in society at once. It is not actually a crime that none of them draw. And it is none of her business how Charlotte keeps house. Lady Catherine acts and seems to feel entitled because she has money and literally holds the purse strings. And I don't have any defense of that. As we've talked about previously, Pride and Prejudice is written in a period in which money is more fluid between the classes. We see it in the gardeners. They are doing really well financially, even though they are not gentry. So the gentry is finding new ways to assert their class dominance. And Lady Catherine is the epitome of that. Here is Elsie Mitchie on Lady Catherine's behavior and how it is tied to her wealth. So basically what happens as you move to a society that has more mobile wealth is that the idea of virtue gets replaced with the idea of manners. So you've got all this wealth, and the key thing is how do you behave around it? Do you behave well, or are you vulgar about your wealth, right? And and I think that the substitution of manners for virtue is really interesting because virtue is much more associated with social hierarchies. You want to believe the people on top are virtuous. They, they represent virtue, right? And therefore, everything's going to be okay. Manners is interesting because manners is something that you can learn, and it's something that people, uh, that middle class people can develop. That is, they can develop better manners, right? And I think manners are huge in Austin. So the point about Miss Bingley and Lady Catherine is that they are, and somebody, and somebody says it somewhere, they are ill-mannered. They behave without politeness to other people, right? And that, you know, it seems really small to us, I think, right? But I think it's, in Austin's period, it's huge because they are the force that would, if it was let loose, destroy social ties. The force of selfishness, of rudeness, of not caring for others, right? All of that is what I think the period is anxious about. I think part of what Austin is rightly or wrongly showing us with Lady Catherine is that you can have all the money and all the right values like educating women and still make the world worse. You can make people feel small and embarrassed. And then how much good are you really doing? It's a high standard that Austin is holding the world to. But I think that the novel proves that everyone fails. So maybe what Lady Catherine really shows us is that it's really hard to be good. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Oh, I'm having such a response to Lady Catherine listening to all of this. And I'm so relating to what Aisha Ramachandran says about how <laughs> as we get older, she feels different. So thinking about Lady Catherine, I'm really thinking about sort of where her insecurity lies and what that means in terms of this pivotal moment around social class. And I think that there are some interesting clues that Austin's hiding in here. Some of them we find out about 
later on in a conversation between Fitzwilliam and Lizzie. But I'm just going to weave that information in now, because what I think we really need to know about Lady Catherine is how, in fact, she became a lady. And Mm -hmm. it was not through marriage. She ended up marrying a very, very wealthy man who had no title at all. And so here she is having married for money, the way we've been discussing so much, but she hasn't married into a titled family. And the history behind this goes way back. So the system of peerage came to exist as a way to protect England from foreign invaders. It began around the time of the Norman conquest. And the idea was that the person who sort of had the most money in a shire was then named the protector of that shire. For example, the Earl of Hampshire would have lorded over Jane Austen's region. And that was the person who was responsible for mounting protection of that shire in the case of medieval invasion. So it was originally a military position. We see now, as we are seeing the military so present in this book that this is not the way that it works anymore. This is something that remains conferred by the monarchy, but with really sort of symbolic meaning. Yes, there's wealth that carries through a male line, but other than that, it's pretty symbolic. And yet, even to this day, this is still who we see in the House of Lords. We still see these titled people, these titled men, because it does not pass to women, who, you know, as recently as before Tony Blair represented, what, like 800 members who were entitled to sit in the House of Lords. During Tony Blair's era, you know, the House of Lords got rid of all but 92 of those seats. But one of the reasons why is because it was so patriarchal, so sexist, so arcane. And out of all of these titles, Earl is the oldest one. And until, you know, 1337, it was the highest one before the title of Duke was established. And now it stands third in the peerage between Marquess and Viscount. And after that, you could be a lowly baron. I've read all these romance novels, to be clear. (laughs) How to Marry a Marquess, I Kissed an Earl and I Liked It. I've read them all. Sorry, while I've interrupted you, I Googled this. The two kinds of lords in the House of Lords are the Lords Spiritual and the Lords Temporal. What? I mean, we're talking about like a 14th century system, right? Which still exists in some at least ceremonial purpose. But this moment, this moment between what is ceremonial and where the actual money exists, this is what's key, right? So Catherine de Bourgh's title is ceremonial, but the real power that she has is that she married a dude with a lot of money. And that exactly is the tension in so much of the book, right? You know, what are we born into in the great English tradition of manners and of hierarchical power? And what does this nouveau riche mean? And so I think that she's in this slightly insecure place, especially as someone who got passed over because of her womanhood for having the power that clearly this powerhouse would deserve. I mean, imagine who she would be as a man, probably not that different than who she is as a woman, but treated very differently for it. And so what does she have? She has a very insecure, if very wealthy place where she needs to be asserting her authority all the time. That That's sort of her like, that's her wound, I think. And I take 
Professor Ramachandran and Mitchie's points that Austin is conservative in a lot of ways, right? Like she's not calling for us to burn down the house of Lady Catherine, right? She's not saying this is a ridiculous system. Lady Catherine shouldn't have all this wealth. She's laughing at it. She's not calling for revolt. And I understand that too, right? Like revolution is scary. She sees that, right, in her time. She's living in a time just after the American Revolution, also the Napoleonic Wars, right? Like war is very scary. And I think that from our 21st century point of view, she can look very conservative that she's not calling for burning down the house in the way that Bronte is. But I do love that she's like poking fun at it. She's like, hey, I see this, right? It's invisible, You are trying to pretend that these rules and laws are like gravity, are real, whether or not I can see them. And I call bullshit. It's fake. And I actually see the lines that you're drawing and I'm going to poke holes in them. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that this is what we see in Lizzie, right, is that. It's defining that Lizzie is someone who observes things brilliantly and then laughs at them, but doesn't try to tear it down. Lizzie's not a radical. Lizzie owns the fact that she's not a radical. And all of her wit and intelligence is very much dedicated to learning how to live in an unequal situation with the sharpest sense of humor. I mean, I think that one of the things that is pointed at is that Austin has some internalized misogyny that Lady Catherine gets, you know, written up in this way where she is skewered in various ways of, you know, for her ridiculousness, which we can talk about. And that the rich male characters do not, that Darcy is not held to the same standard. And I'm just torn about that. And it probably comes from the fact that I don't want to see Austin as having internalized misogyny, which of course she does. We see that in Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. We see, I mean, like we see it all over the place. But I think that one of the things that your research in today's episode has taught me is that Lady Catherine is operating from fear about her daughter. If her daughter doesn't marry Darcy, then who the hell else is Anne going to marry? Anne's never going to meet anyone. She's too sick to leave the house. And Lady Catherine is to some extent stuck at home because of Anne. And so she's controlling the small things she can. I don't know. Do you do you buy this that like Lady Catherine is skewered in a way that the male characters are not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that talk of Darcy when he gets his mitts in the business of his parish, that is about what an incredibly attentive caretaker he is, even though he's spending most of his time off on hunting trips in the country or at balls in London. He's seen as this incredibly attentive servant, and yet Lady Catherine is seen as meddling. You know, he's seen as charming in in terms of his investment in other people's lives, and yet she is seen as destructive. And of course, we see him as problematic in all these ways initially, but we all know that he's going to be redeemed and all these qualities are going to be resurrected in a totally different way. I also think it's worth noting about Anne de Berg, Anderberg is already the inheritor of this estate. She already has all the money. She has all the property. She has all the land. And so 
it's not that Anderberg isn't going to have anything if she doesn't marry Darcy. She may not have love. She may not have a partnership. And I think most importantly, she will not have been used to consolidate the capital, which is what Lady Catherine and her sister have envisioned. And that, I mean, honestly, isn't that what rich girls are for? They're not for anything else, it seems, except for marrying to the appropriate person for the appropriate consolidation of capital. Um, They also embroider. They do embroider and draw and play piano, though I don't know that Anderberg does any of these things because she's apparently too weak to, which I think is also really sad, right? I mean, Lady Catherine clearly had a child who had some sort of failure to thrive syndrome and that daughter's reputation and legacy is going to be based on how desirable she is to a man because what else matters? It's it's a sad thing, I think, the places from which women need to find their power, their reputation and their legacy. I do take issue with Aisha Ramachandran's point that Anne is sort of small because Lady Catherine is big, that Anne is an extension of Lady Catherine. And I don't know if that is like my disability theory mind that like, can we give this kid some bodily autonomy and like some people are just small. And and so not only am I like morally about that reading, I also don't really think it's what Austin is up to. I think that Austin is drawing Anne in this way so that A, Lizzie can gloat now, being like, ha-ha, this is who Darcy is betrothed to. Like, this isn't a lively woman who's going to travel the country with him. Like, he's not going to have fun being with this woman. And also, so that we don't have, like, a really firm understanding of who she is or what she wants, so that when Darcy goes back on the quote-unquote betrothal, we're not mad at him for it. That would be a really horrible thing to do if we saw Anne as this, like, young, healthy, beautiful woman who was really pinning hopes on Darcy and was really sitting around waiting for Darcy, we would really judge him for that. But she's this sick girl at home who only wants to talk to her governess. And so it's easy for us to write her off. I just, I think Austin is potentially being offensive in another way, but I don't see any evidence in the text for like, Anne is somehow being made small because Lady Catherine is so big. I think that there's an argument for it. I mean, clearly, a brilliant professor argued it. <laughs> I don't think Professor Ramachandran is an idiot. Of course not. And we worship and adore her. But I think that in the same way that we can think about disability theory from the vantage point of now, we can also think about, you know, personality disorders and trauma theory and all these other elements in which if we think about the notion that this is how she has written Anderberg. Anderberg could have been someone who, you know, was vastly immoral or, you know, had so many personality traits that would make us not feel bad about Darcy's ultimate rejection of her as a wife. But the fact that we need to feel how oppressive and controlling Lady Catherine is, how much she needs to be the biggest voice, the biggest authority in the room, in whatever room that she's in, that there's, you know, 
that she can even determine the weather in her own sense of herself. I think that having her her lone child be someone who is so shrunken and silent is something that only enhances how unable she is to nurture and how incapable she is of having any voice in the room except for her own. And yes, on the one hand, that is part of her villainy, but part of why I was so interested in her peerage line is that I think that is also the the start of some real insecurity. And I think that if we were looking at, for example, like narcissistic personality disorder, we would see that that comes from a place of like real insecurity and pain and fear. And that is often when people develop into a persona like Lady Catherine's and that what it means to be raised by a mother with that sort of persona can tend to either have someone rise up to fight it or be ultimately quashed by it. And I do wonder if that is something that Austin is giving us to enhance how totalizing Lady Catherine's personality is. I mean, it's not like we can yeah. we can look at the medical records because it's, no, 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 no. it's an invented person. <laughs> and and Austin is making these choices based on what she wants us to feel, but also totally. what she feels, what she knows about a society that she observes. Yeah, I and right. We'll never know. I mean, Lady Catherine is so ridiculous. I forgot how ridiculous she is in this chapter. And I think it's because, you know, in between reading Pride and Prejudice, I watched the movies and Lady Catherine is like high and mighty in the movies, but she's not this ridiculous. She's giving Charlotte farming advice. But I'm like, lady, when have you ever managed chickens? There's no freaking way. Are you seriously telling Charlotte Lucas, who's like from the countryside and is managing her own eggs, how to do that? But this is how obsessed with control she is, right? Right. She cannot control her own daughter's health. She cannot control whether or not she inherits an estate. She cannot control whether she received the title that she clearly would have been intellectually and powerfully up to maintain. But she can control the people who she hires, which I think indicates why she would have hired someone as obsequious, someone as sycophantic as Colin, someone who's dying to be controlled by her. I mean, it's like it's like a sadomasochistic relationship, which, of course, Charlotte wants no part in. There's like no kink in this for her. But I think that that is that's an element of it. And honestly, I don't know reading that if Lady Catherine is so obsessed with control that she has studied up on farming techniques and poultry raising so that she can literally be in on everything and be right about everything. Or it might be that she just has so much arrogance that she just thinks that she can she can tell everyone how to live based on no information at all. We're actually not told. And I think that's kind of interesting. I do think that we have some evidence that she has no idea what she's talking about. So Lady Catherine is showing off. She's like, I think governesses are super important. Right. And again, like even for women, like she really is saying that like women deserve a good education. And then she's like, I love matchmaking families and governesses. But then there's this line where she says, four nieces of Mrs. Jenkinson are most delightfully situated through my means. And it was but the other day that I recommended another young person who was merely accidentally mentioned to me, and the family are quite delighted with her. 
And the fact that she recommends a governess, even though that governess was merely mentioned to her, shows that she just likes to meddle. She doesn't need any information. Someone can be like, hey, I've heard really good things about Sally. And she's like, on it, I'll find Sally a house. I do feel like, right, like this is evidence that she will boss around based on no information. Well, I think it's also such a great example of how philanthropy doesn't work when it's controlled (laughs) by rich people. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that Austin is seeing this as someone who who came up in a world that was like adjacent to money, but was very much in the place where good works were done. To me, it's every classic like, oh, I'm rich, so I'm on the board. So now I know everything about the thing that I'm on the board of and I'm going to tell everyone how to run it. I mean, it's the way that all of this still works, right? You write a check to book your table at the gala for homeless youth and all of a sudden, in, you are the person who's ending homelessness. This is an age-old issue, and it's certainly one that we are living with now as much as ever. But it's also part of that sort of narcissism, right? That the problems of other people exist for me to solve, be proud about, and brag about at dinner parties. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Can we also talk about how messed up it is that Collins loves being seated at the foot of the table while she's at the head of the table? They're pretending to be a married couple. There's a moment where Collins delights in the fact he apparently has warned everyone, I will most likely be sitting at the foot of the table. And then he is just delighted that it has come true in front of Lizzie, who rejected him, that he gets to sit at the foot of the table with Lady Catherine at the head of the table. And I'm like, this is so freaking weird. You guys are acting like a married couple in front of Charlotte. And he's just so happy about it. There's no reason why she can't sit at the head of the table and he sit on the sides with everybody else. You don't need someone at the foot of the table. This is very strange. Do we think they're having an affair? (gasps) Vanessa. (laughs) Do we hope they're having an affair? Like this is a slight (laughs) sex aside. This is like a kinky particular relationship that is doing very specific things for both of them. Well, I would hope that they were having an affair for everyone's benefit. But Mm -hmm. I do think that probably more than actual intercourse, what Collins really gets off on is being able to stand up and carve the roast like he's daddy at the foot of the table. That's what he's in it for. 
Poor Charlotte. I mean, yeah, poor Charlotte, who we really don't see in this chapter. Austin doesn't point us to Charlotte in any real way. She points us to Lizzie's feelings about Charlotte, but not to Charlotte herself. Charlotte's just sort of quiet and polite. Charlotte is very polite and seems to handle the situation really well in Lizzie's estimation. But that's sort of all we get. Well, Lizzie gets a voice. Charlotte doesn't. And Lizzie gets a voice with Lady Catherine, which Lady Catherine notes. And I think that it is one of these sorts of, you know, it's it's the pregame for the battle royale that we are going to find ourselves witnessing. Obstinate, headstrong girl. Yeah. Love it. And what is this? Is These are two obstinate, headstrong girls in opposition with each other who were trying to like be nice on the playground in front of everyone's view, but there's a real circling each other, sniffing each other out, seeing how far they can push things. And I love that. I, I love that Lizzie is not cowed by the same things that other people are cowed by, and that, frankly, Lady Catherine seems to really respect her for it. Oh, I don't see evidence for that. You do? I think that she enjoys having someone who she can spar with a little bit and who she can ask questions of who's actually going to give her answers that she can dig into a little bit. I really disagree. I think Lady Catherine finds Lizzie very frustrating. I don't think she is entertained by this other than like frustration is entertainment. One of the things that you do to a puppy to tire them out is like give them a puzzle where there's a treat inside of it. And you're just counting on the fact that they are so frustrated and mad that they will keep playing with this toy to exhaust them. And I think that Lizzie is essentially doing that. <laughs> Lady Catherine, she's just frustrating the hell out of her. And that 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 might be its own kind of fun. But Lady Catherine still bosses Lizzie around and what I find to be a very annoyed tone of like, wow, you give your opinion decidedly for one so young. Like, and I think she finds Lizzie ridiculous when Lizzie won't tell her how old she is. She's like, you're not old enough to like not say how old you are. I think she enjoys having all the power and Lizzie takes some of her power through her wit and unwillingness to play by her rules. And what some of the rules that Lady Catherine wants her to play by is she wants Lizzie to be ashamed of the fact that she doesn't draw and to be ashamed of the fact that she, you know, more of her sisters don't play piano. And, and Lizzie's just like, well, I'm not ashamed, right? Like, I don't know why we would have to do all of that. And yeah, I don't get the sense that there's this like connection between the two of them on that, on that level. I don't disagree with you. I don't think I see it as enjoyment or connection, just as engagement, I think that you're absolutely right that Lizzie gives her something to do, very much like the puppy and the puzzle. She at least gets to do something other than simply have her ass kissed. And she can decide whether Lizzie is going to be a project or not. She can decide whether she wants to invite Lizzie around a little bit more to become her patron in some way, or if she decides that, that Lizzie's just going to be a threat in some way. And I think that she's trying to puzzle that out in a way that doesn't relinquish her own authority, but may feel something a little familiar and engaging in Lizzie. I mean, I feel like we see that very clearly in this exchange that Lizzie and Lady Catherine have about education. Lady Catherine is, is fairly progressive in this speech, right? She, she says 
and I'm quoting, I always say that nothing is to be done in education without study and regular instruction and nobody but a governess can give it. And part of me is like, that's pretty progressive that you're saying that like even women, right, deserve a steady and regular instructor and a governess who is devoted to their education. And then, of course, there are major class implications here because not everybody can afford a governess. And there are actually other ways, including school. And there's education reform happening across Europe at this time. And so on one level, I'm like, do you know what, Lady Catherine, like, this is really progressive and Lizzie would have gotten a better education under you than she did under Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. And then of course, there's just like no, I think what we would think of now is like checking her privilege here. Oh, absolutely. I think it's also interesting to think about what the older generation of women thinks matters for the younger generation of women. So Mrs. Bennett thinks that her daughters need to be pretty and sly and flirtatious in order to have fulfilled adult lives, whatever that means to her. You know, Lady Catherine thinks that women should be educated to have fulfilled adult lives. And of course, she doesn't have to worry about the money question there. But still, it's a major statement. You know, Mrs. Gardner believes in travel and exposure to new landscapes and new ideas and a life, you know, in London where there's newness all around you. I mean, these are all radically different ways of learning how to be a woman. And I think it's interesting thinking about what what makes this generation, how Lydia is going to become Lydia, how Lizzie is going to become Lizzie, who Anda Berg is as we get to know her a little bit better, and how much it matters that you have a very clear worldview about what a woman is worth and what a woman needs and how a woman is going to get to become that because the world isn't providing it for you. You as a parent need to make it happen yourself. That is the only system that really exists. And it's interesting the way that Lady Catherine sort of parses out the blame, right? She says, but why people with less money than your father have governesses all the time? And then she says, well, then your mother must have been quite a slave to your education. When Lizzie's like, no, don't worry about it. She wasn't a slave to our education at all. Right, Lady Catherine is judgmental of that. I love that someone is saying, you actually kind of have bad parents. And Lizzie, again, and this is probably Austin's voice, right? She's saying, those of us who wanted to learn were encouraged to learn and given all the tutors that we wanted to have. But certainly those of us who didn't really have a lot of curiosity were able to do whatever they want and watch Lydia go off to Brighton. There's this moralism that Lydia is just sort of like bad to the core. Whereas I think Lady Catherine believes in the power of education to reform And I mean, to some extent, Austin and Lizzie do, too, that Mr. Bennett could have made a different decision and not allowed Lydia to go to Brighton and things would have ended up very differently. And so Austin, I think, believes in both in a a complicated and important way that Lydia is lazy. She wasn't asking for books. She wasn't asking for piano teachers the way that Mary was. But also parenting decisions could have been made that would have created a stronger character within Lydia. And we've already heard from Darcy that, frankly, what he wants in a woman is someone who can argue with him about books. Mm-hmm. 
So <sighs> she's onto something. Yes. And that is the difference between Darcy and Lady Catherine, right? Lady Catherine doesn't want anyone to argue with her. She wants people to agree with her. Whereas Darcy is like, no, I want someone who's going to argue with me. And that could go back to this gendered thing that we were talking about earlier in Austin's internalized misogyny potentially. But that is the like gulf of difference, I think, between Darcy and Lady Catherine. We get the impression that Darcy is a good steward of his property because he actually engages in conversation with, you know, the people beneath him, you know, implied in his, I want people to argue with me about books is like, he'll listen to his land steward. He'll listen to his housekeeper. Whereas Lady Catherine actually already knows the way that everything should be done. And yet Darcy has all this inherent authority based on his manhood, whereas Lady Catherine has to invent and nurse every moment of her authority or it won't exist. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't like her either. I don't want to hang out with her either. I'm just saying, you know, I think that there are some factors at play here that make her awful. And men don't have to be made awful that way. They just get to be. Yeah. Right. Like women are shrill and men are passionate and, you know, men have opinions and women are bossy and absolutely. And Mr. Bennett gets to hide out in his library all day and not have to worry about educating his own daughters. Oh, believe me, I am right behind you on the Mr. Bennett is a failed parent. I mean, essentially, at the end of the day, no one is above or beneath Austin's skewering, right? She's judging everybody, including Lizzie. Lizzie is made ridiculous in this novel. She's wrong about everyone and everything. But her preference is at the end of the day for people who are fun to be around. And who have a sense of humor and ability to make fun of themselves, which is, of course, Lizzie's salvation. And I think through her writing, Austin's salvation. And I think that if you spend your life in drawing rooms, there is a moral good to people who are going to be more fun to be around. And that perhaps is the reason that I do not fall in love with Darcy, is I am not charmed by him because I do not think that he is fun to be in a drawing room with. And that is perhaps my baseline requirement. Mm, I think that's really interesting to track that if one of the things that Austin is saying is I think that you should at least be pleasant for me to be in a drawing room with is Darcy when we meet him again here at Rosings and then later at Pemberley, does he become fun to be around? That could be the pivot. Well, Lauren, we're going to be able to figure out some of that soon because Darcy is arriving at Rosings in the next chapter. Sooner than expected, because guess who's there? I know, a little sweet and a little stalkerish, just how romance novels like their men. <laughs> so next episode, everyone, we are going to be reading chapters 30, 31, and 32. I'm so excited. Lizzie and Darcy have been separated for like 20 chapters. I'm excited for them to be in the room with each other again. I honestly can't wait, despite all my crankiness. So I keep wondering if I am sentimentalizing Lady Catherine, if I am trying to find the feminism in myself to read her differently than she may be actually written on the page, if I may be attempting to give her 
a backstory erroneously so that I can somehow feel comfortable in her as someone who cares about about women and tropes of women and aging women myself. I'm starting to sound a little Carrie Bradshaw a little later that night I was thinking. But later that night I was thinking, <laughs> what if I am just sentimentalizing Lady Catherine de Bourgh? What if she is more of a trope than I want her to be? Maybe that's okay. I don't know about that. But I did want to ask someone who I thought would have strong thoughts about this, the co-host of Witch Please and Secret Feminist Agenda and an associate professor at Simon Fraser University. You may know her as Hannah McGregor. You may have listened to her many times. Hannah has a new book out called A Sentimental Education that I think might get right to the heart of some of these questions. So let's call her up. Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us. I just want to say as like a little fan's note, having just read A Sentimental Education, it is so close to my heart and there are so many conversations I want to have with you. So I'm going to try to help us focus on Lady Catherine, but forgive me if I veer off onto other satellites because it's just, it's all in your brain. I just want everything in your brain. So Hannah, just to kick us off, first I'm so curious about your interest in sentimentality. And actually, could you even define the word sentimental as you understand it in this context? I mean, with great with great difficulty. It's kind of there's a whole essay in the book where I'm like, sentimentality, what does it mean? Let's talk about that a lot because it means a bunch of different things. The sentimental was a particular literary and philosophical movement that sort of emerged in the 18th century, had probably its literary heyday in the 19th century. In part, you know, it was a philosophical movement that it was about valuing the the knowledge that comes out of emotionality, rather than understanding humans as being sort of purely rational beings, which is part of the sort of larger project of, you know, coming up with like, an ethics, like a way through which we can live in modernity together. So like, do we want a sort of Kantian, like purely rational, like we come up with rules that apply well to everybody. We let no feeling into those rules, the end. Or do we want something that is more sentimental, which is about the idea that we can imagine our way into one another's perspectives, that we can, you know, think about <laughs> one another, actually care about one another. And then we get sort of sentimental literature in many ways sort of blossoming out of the same philosophical conversation. And sentimental literature is a genre of literature that is concerned with the moral education of young people. A lot of the sentimental literature that I have read is sentimental literature about women. It's not all, you know, there's lots that are also about men. I just don't like reading books about men. But the sentimental literature about women often features sort of plucky young women who must receive a moral education through which they become sort of mature adults ready to be a wife and a mother, essentially. So we see a lot of both sentimental tropes in literature of this time, and then also a lot of the literature that has lasted is the literature that was pushing against sentimental tropes. So Little Women, and actually most of Austen's work, 
are examples of literature that was sort of taking up sentimentality as it was circulating at the moment and messing with it a little bit, pushing back against it a little bit, questioning its assumptions a little bit. So that's what, you know, when we're talking about Austen, on the one hand, we've got to talk about the sentimental novel, the concept of sensibility, which goes hand in hand with sentimentality. And then on the other hand, we also use sentimentality to talk about a kind of nostalgic, emotionally charged attachment that we have to things. And so this is where you get the double valence for me is that I have a sentimental relationship to a lot of sentimental literature. (laughs) I mean, it's no coincidence, of course, that like the novel really came of age in this sort of Rousseauian moment of thinking about about the, the emotionality, the deeper self, how we can connect with other people. And of course... Austin's yeah. just just co- coming into her power in this in this moment, and it's so interesting. I think as such a radically emerging woman writer in this mode that is so identified with femininity, and yet the Trailblazers, like Austin, were really quite new in this mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like you can almost always see in the women writers who took up sentimentality. So many of them seem so much more aware of the way that sentimentality was a bit of a trap. We've got these heroines who are who are positioned sentimentally to find true love, to let their emotions guide them. And yet her novels are threaded through with an awareness of the fact that marriage is, is ultimately a business arrangement and that there are concerns you must keep in mind, like having enough money to live that maybe matter more than feelings. And of course, in so many ways, this is the central tension of Pride and Prejudice, right? We yeah. see we see Charlotte's choice and we feel Lizzie bristling against it. And, you know, at the moment in the book that, that we are now, it's we're very, very present in what it would mean for Darcy to have to have a similar consideration, right? Mm-hmm. For him to, to marry as the aunts had determined... Lady Catherine's daughter, Anne de Berg, which I think we're already sensing would be a loveless marriage for him, would simply be about the consolidation of familial line and capital. And so I think that we're about to see coming soon. And in the story is what it means for Darcy to shirk that. And then for Lizzie to shirk his shirking, right? To, to think yet again, like proposal number two down the pike is going to be one which is like, this does not speak to my heart. It doesn't matter what safety you can offer me. And yeah. with each one of these rejections, we feel Lizzie coming into her power more mm-hmm. and more, right? Lizzie has the power to reject. Lizzie has the power to overturn the whole system, right? That says it's business, say yes. And I think that there's a really interesting moment that's that's really gaining steam in this part of the book where we feel Lizzie coming into her power as we are seeing how Lady Catherine wields her own power. And Lady Catherine's use of power is so problematic and so much of what villainizes her. While we're seeing Lizzie's use of power feel so radical in contrast, but I actually wonder how much discomfort with power actually exists at the heart of Lady Catherine and within their relationship. So tell us, Hannah, what do you think about what I'm rambling on about? (laughs) So I think... Like, Lady Catherine is getting sassed by a 20-year-old. 
like she's you know she's an adult and she's trying to like arrange marriage in an adult and practical way and then she's got this like practically teen coming along and being like "Mm, you don't understand the way the world works and actually lady catherine understands the way the world works very well and that is within the sentimental tradition she is the wrong kind of woman she is practical she is unromantic she is ugly Although it's so interesting, but, by, because by ugly, I think we just mean old, right? We're told by Austin that she was beautiful and now she's, you know, this sort of hag, mm-hmm. which then yeah. makes me just think, oh, right. She's a woman in her 40s. Yeah. And contrast <laughs> her to who I think is kind of like the sentimental extreme, which is Mrs. Bennett, who cares about nothing but marriage and is all about her feelings is constantly overwhelmed by the intensity of her feelings and must go and lie down. And I think if we sort of put them next to each other, I think we both get some of that sly Austenian, like, we just hate adult women. (laughs) Well, it's also interesting because they're both working towards the same goals, right? They have exactly the same standards, they have exactly the same aims, and yet one is all heart and one is all head. One is all nerves and the other is all system. You know, Mrs. Bennett loves Lydia's terrible marriage, whereas Lady Catherine knows that that is a terrible marriage. And Lady Catherine is right. (laughs) That is a bad marriage that is going to do bad things for that family. And so, again, narratively, she's there, I think, to speak a lot of the ugly truths that linger under the surface of the marriage market. You know, like like all witch figures, she's an older woman speaking the truth, and so she is monstrous. But I think that, you know, we have an opportunity as as feminist readers to to pause over that monstrosity and think about like, well, what work is this doing? narratively. And I think one of the things it is doing is is reminding us that there are truths to what she's saying and that those truths are so ugly that the text itself can barely bear them, but they're still there. Do you read her as a villain? Do you read her and have an emotional response to her that feels like revulsion or hatred or resentment? No, I find her mostly funny actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I also, I love bitches <laughs> in media. Mm-hmm. I am always deeply drawn to badly behaved women. I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's something that I think, you know, we need to push back against and think through because a lot of the bitches that we love to sort of you know, redeem or celebrate our kind of Lucille Bluth or Miranda Priestley's are like Lady Catherine de Bourgh, rich old white ladies. And rich old white ladies are the only women who can be badly behaved and get away with it because they are women. And that's, you're not supposed to be bad when you're a woman, but they are rich They are no longer sort of being policed by the logics of desirability, right? They're they're sort of post-desirability because of their age, and they are white. And the combination of those things 
sort of centers them in power in such a way that they have access to a kind of bad behavior that feels a little exciting because they are for the most part surrounded by women who we see not able to behave badly, women who we see getting punished for behaving badly. And so it feels cathartic and liberatory to see these women being bad. And we have to remember that they're not, it's not that they're allowed to be bad because they're women. They're allowed to be bad despite the fact that they're women because they are rich and white. Absolutely. Well, I I thank you so much for joining us. I cannot recommend your book more, A Sentimental Education. And I just, you know, I can't wait till we can talk again. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to meet you. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompod. Thank you so much to those of you who joined last month. We didn't quite hit our goal of a thousand, but we got really close and you all are amazing. If you love the show, please leave us a review wherever you are listening to my amazing voice right now. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks, as always, to our Jane-level patrons, Viscount Elise Kenagrotnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Snegas of Breakfast Carbston, Night Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks this week to Aisha Ramachandran, Elsie Mitchie, and Hannah McGregor for talking to us, Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Yaramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.